We have been going through the book of Revelation, and we have been seeing Jesus' messages to the seven churches. And if you've been with us for a while, you know these are not feel-good messages. They're, they're not make you feel good. They're, they're hard-hitting, and today, Jesus is going to bring the heat again. That's why it's a little hot in here. It's, it's just going to really keep bringing the heat. And it's sometimes when you hear this, you're like, oh, I don't want to hear this. Can we just talk about stuff that makes me feel good? And our responsibility at, at our church is to simply go through the Bible and let the Word say what it's going to say. And we're responsible by God's grace to respond to it or not. And so before we get into this morning, I think it's appropriate that we pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now through the Lord Jesus Christ who is reigning at your right hand. And he still speaks today by the power of your spirit through your word. And the messages that you gave to these churches are also for us, for our church. And a lot of times we don't want to hear it. And especially today it's going to seem really hard. And Lord, what I'm asking that, that you would give me the power to do is not to make it harder than it is and not to make it softer than it's supposed to be, but let it be your word. If it pierces in significant ways to different hearts, to you be the glory. And so Lord, just be with us now. Give us patience, make us alert, um, and stir us to hear and obey. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you know that, that tolerance is one of the key virtues of our society. The idea is to show love and respect to people who are different and may have different beliefs. And as a Christian, we can function in this culture as tolerant people. And as we tolerate a variety of different people and beliefs in our culture, tolerance does not mean agreement. Tolerance does not mean affirmation. You guys know that, right? We can disagree with other people and still be tolerant and live at peace. There, uh, my wife and I were looking out the window of our house this past week and walking down our street where, where Muslims wearing the, um, the full traditional uh, Muslim, Muslim clothes and we can uh, love them, interact with them. We don't have to agree with them, but uh, we can tolerate uh, different religions, right? We can have different beliefs. Uh, when I go out to Rogers Park to, to share the gospel, there are Hare Krishnas out on the street sharing their message as well. I'm not going to come up with a plan to bring them down, but we can tolerate them, interact with them, we can disagree with them. And this happens as we live in this pluralistic uh, culture with a lot of different religions, right? We, we can tolerate. Doesn't mean we agree. Doesn't mean we affirm. But also with regard to, to morals. Let's say you live in a condo building and your, your neighbors next to you are not, not believers and they're, they're living together uh, before marriage, if they get married at all. It's not like you're knocking on their door all the time and say, hey, you need to quit living together. You can love them, be gracious with them. You, can, you don't have to agree with them. You can share the gospel with them. But we live in this culture as we interact with people in the world who do not know Jesus, who have different beliefs, different morals. There can be a sense of tolerance. Does it mean agreement? Does not mean affirmation. So that's the way we function out in our culture, in our world. We all pretty much can agree with that. Now I'm about to shift. And if you don't shift with me, you're going to miss what we're talking about. For the rest of this time, I'm not going to talk about the culture. For the rest of this time, I'm not going to talk about the world. I'm not going to be talking about those who are not uh, followers of Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to shift the focus now to talk about the church, those who truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question I want to ask is this. Within the church, should the church be a place of tolerance? Should the church be a place of tolerance? And the answer is yes and no. In some sense, we tolerate one another. You tolerate my quirks and eccentric personality. Not going to tolerate your annoying personality and <laughs> your quirks. So there's this one sense we, we tolerate uh, things like that. And if people are growing in sanctification, they're growing in Christ-likeness, we're patient, we endure long, and we, we tolerate one another. And we can even tolerate different viewpoints on, on things like styles of music. Maybe you like a certain style of music in church, someone else has another preference, we can tolerate that. We can, we can maybe disagree on the ongoing use of miraculous spiritual gifts in the church. We can have specific uh, beliefs on end times nuances. So there, there are ways that we can have tolerance within the church. But tolerance within the church is supposed to have limits. Tolerance within the church is supposed to have limits. And the problem comes, are you with me here? The problem comes when a church holds to the Bible and yet it tolerates members with opposing viewpoints that are sinful or opposing lifestyles that are sinful. I'm not talking about those who are growing in Christ, sanctifying, being, you know, being challenged and, and struggling along. I'm talking about a church who says they hold to the Bible, and yet they tolerate its members to live a certain lifestyle of sin or to have viewpoints that are heretical or against the Bible. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to give you four. There are many. First example... The wrong kind of tolerance can be seen within a church when the, the, the believers within the church hold to the Bible that says that marriage is between a, a man and a woman and sex is reserved for marriage. But there may be some couples, some members in the church who are living together before marriage without being called out. It's the wrong kind of tolerance. Another example is the church teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven through his life, death, and resurrection. But some of the members in the church advocate that there are many ways to heaven. There is a broad view of God's love, and a church tolerates it. It's the wrong kind of tolerance. How about this one? Theologically, the church would believe that, that all people are made in the image of God regardless of the color of their skin or nationality. But many within a church intentionally remain segregated without being called out. That's the wrong kind of tolerance. And lastly, there is sound doctrine on how women should be treated in the Bible with respect and love. Yet some in the church continue to exploit women through the use of pornography without being called out. Once again, that is the wrong kind of tolerance. A church that says they hold to sound doctrine and, and may hold to sound doctrine and yet tolerates its members to go off the rails is in danger of being judged by Jesus. 
Once again, we're not talking about those who are working through issues, who are struggling, who are trying to grow in their faith and in their Christ-likeness. We're talking about those who've gone off the rails theologically and morally, and the church does nothing. A church like that is in danger of being judged by Christ. And that's the kind of church we're going to look at today. It's a church of Pergamum, if you want to go ahead and turn that. It's in Revelation chapter 2. It's a church who held to sound doctrine and yet tolerated sin in their midst. And we're going to see what Jesus says to them. So let's go ahead and stand. Let's read Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. I'm going to read it to you. Start in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You may be seated. Chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus' words of confrontation and comfort to the seven churches. Each church has a similar address where Jesus identifies himself in a certain way. He commends the church for something good they're doing. Then he confronts them for some sin. And then he offers them a chance to repent with the promise of eternal life. Each church is unique and yet they have some similarities and these letters were passed along to these seven churches and they were meant to be read by each church in the sense they were to read each other's mail. And this this charge to the churches has gone out to the churches throughout the years, even down to today. And so when we get in the word, we want to say, Jesus, what are you saying to us today as one of your churches? And this morning, we're going to look at the church of Pergamum. And to kind of give you a summary statement of this, the, the church was strong externally, but compromised internally. I'm going to say it again. The church was strong externally, but compromised internally. That's what he's getting at today. That's his message. Let's start with verse 12. Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Maybe you want to know a little history. Maybe you don't. I'm going to tell you anyway. The, this city, Pergamum, was about 120 to 200,000 people in Asia Minor, about 50 miles north of Smyrna. If you wonder where these, these churches are located, I'll put a map up for you. And I, maybe you don't care. Maybe it's in the back of your Bible. That's generally uh, the area where they're at, the seven churches that are being addressed. It was a significant city because it was the central hub 
of worshiping the emperor. In fact, it was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a living Roman emperor, Augustus. Jesus, in this message, identifies himself as he does in all of them. Look again at verse 12. He calls himself the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In Ephesus, he's the one walking among the churches. He sees what they're doing. We move on last week as he's dealing with the church of Smyrna. He's there as the living one who knows their suffering. But here, he gives this imagery of being a judge. He's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember from chapter 1, verse 16, he has this sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. It's the imagery of judgment, and it's found in the Bible of God's judgments and proceeding from his mouth. And the sword in this instant is threatened to be used against the church. Let me hop down to verse 16. Can you just do it real quick? Look at verse 16. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus Christ is a judge and he's ready to strike with the words of his mouth, even some of those within the church. Now, before we get to that, let's look at Jesus' words of commendation. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The church is commended. They've been standing firm in the open proclamation of the gospel. Even in the midst of pushback, they have hold fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny their faith. But it hasn't been easy because it says that Satan dwells there. He lives there. <laughs> Why would Satan dwell there in particular? Of course, they have a lot of temples to gods and goddesses, but, but probably they would say that Satan dwells there because it's the central hub of the worship of the emperor. And worshiping the emperor was everyone's patriotic and mandatory duty. However, as we can tell, the church refused to worship the emperor and faced persecution to the point where this guy in here, his name was Antipas, he was put to death. And tradition tells us that he was boiled to death in a huge kettle. And he's described here as the faithful witness, as Christ was described as well. And what you'll often find when you have a witnessing church, you will have a persecuted church because light and darkness cannot dwell together. It's true even today. When you have a consistent witnessing church, you will have a church that is persecuted. But Jesus is saying, hey, the sword is coming. They may kill you. They may kill you for your faith, but they just kill the body. They cannot kill the soul. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that brings the ultimate sword of eternal judgment. So he commends them. You're doing great. You're standing firm. Some of you are being killed. Good job. Externally, you're, you're resisting the pressures of the culture who are saying, bow down to the emperor. And you're saying no, and you're being killed. You're doing great. You're going to have a reward. Good job. That's, that's a commendation. But then it switches. It switches from commendation to confrontation. And I'm, I'm going to kind of set this up by saying, I, I, I saw a switch recently. I saw a switch on Friday night. 
On Friday night, I took uh, a, a lot of my kids to uh, Six Flags Great America. Anybody ever go to that? Okay. So we, we get there. It opens at 5, 5 o'clock. Just cranking on the rides. Just hardly any lines. We're having fun. We're having a, a blast. It's a lot of fun. And it's all oh, the kids are having, you know, our, our little kids are riding all these rides. And it's just, it's awesome, right? Big kids, look, and they're just having a fun time. That lasted for about an hour and 15 minutes. And then around 6.15, it started to get dark. If you know anything about Six Flags this time of year, the freaks come out at night. I did not know this. <laughs> Has anybody been to that, by the way? Anybody? Am I just talking here? Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Very, very scary. The park starts to be filled with creepy clowns. Creepy clowns that are worse than your nightmares. The park starts to be filled with reapers. The park starts to be filled with zombies. And they're not passive. They are aggressive. And I thought, for sure, I'm pushing a stroller. There's no way creepy clowns are going to try to scare me. No. No shame. I mean, these are scary clowns. You look it up. And they're scaring my kids. And I'm pushing... The, the youngest one, the strollers through them and try to ignore them. And I look back, my family's not there. The clowns are chasing them. And my daughter is somewhere over there screaming. And it was amazing. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, wow, that, that was quite the switch. And I was trying to think, how are we going to get out of here? Are we, like, are we stuck? And we had this really big dude come by us. And he's like, man, I'm going to stay by you guys. <laughs> this is too scary. He's like trying to have our protection with us. And we started moving through the zombies. And he, he didn't even come, you know. But we finally got out through all, through all the crying. And, and I thought, wow, that was quite the switch. An hour and 15 minutes was great. The church and Pergamum are commended. Doing good. And now Jesus is like, okay, let's talk about the creepy clowns now, yeah? Our worship service lasts about an hour and 15 minutes. You look good. Most of you are awake, smiling. But you know that outside of here, there's something else going on that's not always the best in your own heart and people you know. There's something that's not always right and at times that needs to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, let's now talk about this. Let's talk about how you have compromised. And he talks about their compromise. Look at verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The church is strong externally, but compromised internally. And I want to break down this accusation because that's kind of hard to understand. So I want to break it down into three parts. I want to talk about the historical problem. I want to talk about Pergamum's problem and the main problem. And I'm hoping this will explain it to you. We're going to talk about historical problem, Pergamum's problem, and the main problem. So let's start with the historical problem. Back to verse 14. I'm going to read it again. But I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. Jesus is connecting Pergamum's sin to something that happened in the Old Testament. And rather than send you to the book of Numbers and have you read all this, I'm going to tell you the story. There was a king. His name was Moab. No, he was a king of Moab. His name was Balak. And Balak hired the prophet Balaam, and he wanted Balaam to curse his enemies, the Israelites. But every time that, that Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, the Lord made him bless the Israelites. Remember that story? He blessed them instead of cursed them. And so the Lord protected them from the external threat. It was averted. But there was an internal threat. Balaam came up with this plan. He said, I, I can't get... I can't curse them. The Lord keeps making me bless them. So he came up with this plan. And the plan was, how can I get them to sin and turn away from the Lord? So he came up with this plan. It was a very deceptive plan where he enticed the Israelite men with the Moabite women who brought them to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. And it was the downfall and the death of many people in Israel. So you got this? So though Israel was protected from the outward threat, it was sin in their own camp that brought the Lord's judgment. That's the Old Testament historical problem. Jesus is now making a connection to Pergamum's problem. Look at Pergamum's problem. Once again, strong externally, but weak internally. Look at verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The spirit of Balaam prevails among the Nicolaitans, and the false teaching infiltrated the church. Just as some in Israel were seduced by Balaam's teaching, so some in the church are being seduced by the Nicolaitans, and it seems like the Nicolaitans are, are teaching about food, sacrifice to idols, idolatry, and sexual immorality. And some within the church are participating and being influenced by these idolatrous feasts and sexual morality. And some have embraced this teaching and they're dabbling with the world and it was fine. And the connection was, just like Balaam used the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men, so many in the church were seduced by false teachers into sexual morality and idolatry. So you got it? Historical Old Testament problem, Pergamum's problem, but get this, that's not the main problem. You know what the main problem is? The main problem and the reason why Jesus is talking to this church is because they are tolerating and accommodating sin. They're firm against persecution but tolerant of those in the midst who dabbled in the ways of the world. And they're not, we're, not, we're not talking about being patient with those who are struggling and working through issues. These are people who are immersed in sin of idolatry and sexual morality and the church is tolerating it. That's why the whole church isn't doing it but only some. Verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there. Verse 15 says, so also you have some, not the whole church. It's only some of them who are participating in idolatry and sexual morality. It's not the whole church. It's only some. And yet the church is not dealing with it. It's letting it flourish. And the Lord Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with that, I will come in judgment. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This church needs to repent of their tolerance and deal with it. They've been letting people slide. And if they do not deal with it, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and deal with it. I'm going to come and I am going to war and judge against those sinners within your church unless you start to deal with it. And the question is, well, how do you deal with it? If people are into sexual morality and idolatry within the church, how are they supposed to deal with it? What does that look like? What does it look like to not tolerate that but to address it? Well, it's what the Bible calls often, there may be something scary for you, something called church discipline. Let's not be dramatic here, okay? For those of you who do not come from backgrounds of churches that practice church discipline, that may sound really harsh and dramatic. Let's just, let's just bring it down for a little bit here. Church discipline is not as dramatic as you think that it is. In fact, most of the times when church discipline happens, it's not raising to the level of the dramatic. And I don't want to get into all the details of, of Matthew 18, but you can read it later, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. But keep this in mind. This is what church discipline is about. Church discipline is corrective, redemptive, and protective. It's corrective, redemptive, and protective. And this is the way it works. You know somebody, goes to your church, maybe someone on campus that's part of your church, and they're, they're into something they shouldn't be into, they're in sin, and you know about it, don't tell anybody. Don't go to your elders. Don't go to anybody. Go to them and say, hey man, you're into something there. I'm, I'm just, I, I love you. I got to tell you this, and I think you should stop. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't be doing that. That's foolish. Pray with me. Help me. Encourage me. And they repent, and it's corrective and redemptive, right? That's great. That's the good. You've won your brother back. Things are going great. That's, that's, that's generally what happens. That's the most of it. That's usually the end of the story. But there are times where you talk to somebody. You ever done this? Talk to somebody, and they're like, no, nah, man, I, I'm, I like my sin way too much. I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not going to repent. So what you do, you go get someone else. You say, hey, man, so-and-so's in sin. Let, come with me. Let's go confront him together in a loving way, in a kind way. And so you go and you confront him. And then he's like, yeah, now I see it. You guys are both explaining it to me. And I repent. And it's, it's corrective and it's redemptive. But there are times where after one, no success. Two, no success. Then the Bible says, all right, what you need to do now is you need to come and tell the whole church just go ahead and tell the whole church. And the whole church can pray for him. The whole church can, can lovingly confront him. And by God's grace, that person will repent. And it's corrective and it's redemptive. Uh, my brothers and sisters, we're not doing this with a judgmental spirit. This is not headhunting. We're not doing this out of anger. And you may think in our tolerant society that we should be tolerant within the church. That is not loving if you are ruining your life and sinning against God, you need someone to come after you. But what if they don't repent? What if after one, they don't repent? After two, they don't repent? You tell the whole church they don't repent, what then? Well, Jesus talks about, you can read this later in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about treating them as an unbeliever who needs to be converted. And Paul says, and Corinthians not to associate with him. He says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 13. I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 13. It's in the context of unrepentant sin. Let me read this to you. 
But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. And you may say, well, that sounds terrible. You mean we're supposed to treat this person as an unbeliever and to purge them from among us as in put them outside? And the answer is yes, that is an act of love. Perhaps they will repent. But also, get this, it protects the church. Church discipline is corrective, redemptive, and at times, and all the times, it's protective. You're protecting the church. And you want to ask me, well, has Evanston Bible Fellowship ever done that? And the answer is yes. And I, I, I struggled with whether I was going to tell you uh, some scenarios this morning, and I'm not. I, 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 just, I don't want to bring stuff up from the past. But yes, there are times where it rises to that level of protecting the church. Every church should believe and practice church discipline. It's, it's what Jesus outlined. It's what he even talks about here in Revelation. It's what Paul's talking about in Corinthians. It's, it's not being mean. We're loving people. If we're just tolerating and letting stuff just fly around, that is not loving. That is not caring. That is not kind. And that is not protective of the body of Christ. Now back to Revelation. Back to Revelation. Let's finish up here. Revelation chapter 2. Once again, he finishes up with verse 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We keep hearing this refrain over and over again, the one who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The one whose heart is obedient in line with Christ, that's the one who is the overcomer. And the overcomer will have the fruit of faith. And you know what part of the fruit of faith is? Part of the fruit of faith is to love your brothers and sisters by sometimes confronting them in sin. Jesus is not saying, well, if you confront people in sin, then I'll give you eternal life, because we know eternal life is by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. But dealing with sin, though it does not save you, it indicates that you are saved. The fruit that comes out of your life is that you care for your brothers and sisters so much that you will make yourself uncomfortable to go and tell them that they need to reverse course and repent, because you love them. That is the fruit of faith. That is the one who is overcoming here in this context. And Jesus says, I'll give you hidden manna, and I'll give you a white stone with a special name. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, the hidden manna, you remember manna was provided to the Israelites out in the desert as they were wandering around. And I don't know if you know this, but from the Bible, a piece of this manna was, was hidden away in the ark. Ark of the Covenant. And here was talking about this hidden manna provision of food for eternal life. As you will feast with Jesus in heaven. And Jesus is called the bread of life. It's hidden. It's, it's in our relationship with Jesus that we have in heaven. That we'll have this feast with him. And he also is, in a sense, I guess we could say, the hidden manna himself. It's promised of eternal life. But also it says that he will give a white stone 
a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what's that talking about? Well, many believe that during this time there were these special stones that were given for entrance into an event or festivities or it was given to a victor in a contest of certain events. And here it's probably this special stone talking about entrance into heaven for all those who overcome. And it's white, indicating that we're, we're cleansed through the blood of Christ. And it's interesting that it says there's this new name given you as you overcome in Christ. It's a name of intimacy. I have uh, children, six children, and I have these special names that I call them, and I debate it whether to tell you some of those names today, and my kids said, no way. So it's like this special name that I have for them. It's like we have this connection. There is this intimacy here. And, and, and that's the, the relationship that Christ has with you, that there is such this intimacy that there is this name he has for you because he loves you. You're his and you were going to be with him in heaven by grace through faith in this intimate relationship. Isn't it amazing that that's the way he ends in the context of confronting the church for their tolerance? That's the way he ends. He, he's saying, I, I'm thinking that your church is going to repent, and I'm encouraging you to overcome. I have a special name for you on this stone, and I have hidden man of a feast in heaven. That's the context there of confrontation and promises of eternal life. And once again, I, I don't want this passage to give you this license to go headhunting for sinners within the church, but it is a license to love. And one of the most unloving things that you can do is to let your brother or sister destroy themselves. One of the most unloving things that you can do is to be quiet while they continue in sin that is eating away at their life and relationship with God. I know it will make you uncomfortable. I know it will be a a very strange conversation. But you know people in your life that you love who are legit believers that you need to go to them and say, hey man, this is kind of off. I've been noticing this in your life, this, this sin. And we're not talking about quirks or personalities. Uh, but there's something going on in your life. And I just, I just want to bring it up. Can I love you? Can I pray for you? Can I encourage you? And that's love. Being quiet is not loving. And sometimes you just have to speak up. Because you're going to want people to do that with you. So those who have claimed to follow Christ and they've kind of gone off the rails, it is a loving thing to intervene and speak the truth and love. And what I want for our church is what Jesus wants for our church. He wants us strong in doctrine, strong externally against persecution, but he also wants us internally strong where we don't tolerate foolishness. We don't tolerate those who are going off the rails and sins and we say nothing. My brothers and sisters, may we be those who speak the truth in love. Let's pray. No doubt, as you were going through this passage this morning, there may be one or two people that came to your mind that are believers, and they may have even discipled you, but they may be straying right now. And they need your gracious words and kind confrontation. Why don't you go ahead and just pray about that situation right now?
Father, sometimes I just think about the parents in here. They think they don't want to discipline their kids because it's not loving, and yet that is love. You discipline us because you love us. We discipline our kids because we love them. And as we're part of a greater family, there are people next to us, around us, and sometimes get deceived and they need loving confrontation. And sometimes that's us. And Lord, I just ask that we would create just a culture, a church of love and grace and truth where we can speak openly and honestly. And yet, your spirit is with us, offering grace, offering restoration, offering correction, ultimately offering us redemption. May we be a church of grace and truth and love. And may we bring glory to you where we find that you're not going to strike some of our members with a sword of your mouth because we want to be a church who is full of truth and grace and repentance and redemption. May you work all those things at once that seem at times to be opposite and contradictory, but they're not. Love and truth can go together. And may we hold that as we hold to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.